Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn brushes and on all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver where it will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Thus far the reading of the perfect word of God. May he now bless its preaching to our hearts and minds. I ask you regularly from this pulpit, what more do you need to trust God? In this morning's passage, Ahaz is put to that question. What does he need to trust God for the present and for the future? Isaiah, and certainly God, know that Ahaz's trust is not in him. Israel and Syria are approaching, intent on overthrowing Judah and David's throne. Isaiah has received a promise from God that this frightful thing will not come to pass. God is allied with Judah. And for those who trust in God, Judah's future, both near and long term, is secure. But trusting in God is not what Ahaz wants. He wants security in his own strength. He wants hope in his own abilities. While God is declaring to those who believe that their future is secure and safe in his hands, Ahaz is scheming behind the scenes, making a secret alliance with Assyria. While we quickly categorize most things in life as either or, I like to say two things can be true at the same time. And what we have in this passage are a few examples of two things happening at once. The first is this, that this is a genuine offer from God. 
Ahaz can ask for any sign that he wants. And at the same time, it's also a bit of calling Ahaz bluff. Sign or no sign, his trust is not in God. God offers Ahaz a sign. What an incredible privilege. Any sign he wants. Depths of Sheol, heights of heaven, anything you can think of, ask for it and I will do it to prove to you that I'm going to keep this promise and that you need not fear the northern kingdom. Any sign he wants to confirm that the plans of Israel and Syria will not stand. Any sign he wants to prove that God is with his people. Now this situation would be frightening for all but the strongest in faith. And so God condescends to Ahaz's weakness and he offers to show him whatever it would take to convince him that God is who he is and will do what he has said he will do. What will it take? This is a moment of truth for Ahaz. Now granted, it's on a much bigger stage than you or I enjoy, but otherwise, doesn't just this sort of thing happen in our lives? The circumstances don't look good. It's hard to look out into the distance and know what will happen in the future and whether that will feel good or bad. And yet God says to trust him. And part of us wants what God says will happen. We want a hope and a future. We want safety and security. We want peace and joy. But there's another part of us that looks at these troubling circumstances and wants either to give in to despair or to take control. This is it. Ahaz can trust in himself rather than God and continue to go his own way, or his faith confirmed by any sign he can imagine. Ahaz can choose to believe God, pointing the people of Judah to faith in Yahweh and calling off his alliance with Assyria. Ahaz chooses unbelief. But look how pious he makes it sound. Verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, how kind of you, Ahaz. I mean, on the surface, that sounds holy, doesn't it? But there is a fine line between sanctified and sanctimonious. On the one hand, it is true, as we read in John's gospel, that it's better to take God at his word. Blessed are you, For you saw and believed what you heard, but more blessed are those who hear and have not seen and yet believe. And scripture does warn us against putting God to the test. God shouldn't have anything left to prove to us at this point, and he certainly has never had to prove anything to any creature that he made along the way. But the difference here, of course, is that by asking for a particular sign, Ahaz would have been obeying God. God told him to ask for a sign. It's not putting God to the test to simply accept what God offers. How this could have played out is that Ahaz comes up with this unbelievable sign and God delivers it 
so that when Ahaz sees it, he receives God's promises as well with faith and with trust. And he proclaims this to all the people of Judah. And they follow their leader, King Ahaz, in faith and trust in God for the future. But there's the rub, isn't it? Ahab passed on the opportunity for a sign precisely because it would have forced him to trust God and to follow God rather than to go his own way and make his own plans and devise his own counsel. We love our own plans, don't we? And like Ahaz, we can sound very godly to others, even as we're minimizing God's word and promises in our hearts. Ahaz is admitting that he doesn't want to give up control of the situation. To accept a sign from God is to entrust his future to God. He can't bring himself to give up that control. So he certainly doesn't want to see anything that proves all the reasons why he should give up that control. So to quote the great theologian Grail Knight from Indiana Jones, he chose poorly. And the choice is significant. And it has long-lasting consequences. One scholar writes, Ahaz decides to go his own way and seals the fate of a generation. What will happen to Judah will happen because of their unbelief and their abandonment of God's promises. And that starts at the top with their king. Ahaz trusted himself rather than God. He trusted Assyria rather than God. And unbelief would be his and his whole generation's undoing. Calamity is coming for them. It's odd to read in English these descriptions of judgment, but the judgment sections of this morning's passage make it clear that Judah will be cast down. But interestingly, not by Syria and Israel, as Ahaz fears, God promised that would not happen. No, Judah will be taken by Assyria, the very ally Ahaz thought would be their salvation. Verse 17 anticipates not just that Israel will be overthrown, but by the nature of the betrayal, so that the humiliation for Judah and her king will be as great as when the kingdom of Israel itself divided into two kingdoms. Whatever we think will save us, if it's not God, far often, far more often than not, becomes our undoing. The very idols that we trust in rather than God are the idols that bring about our destruction. The language of Judah's adversity is vivid. One scholar paraphrases it in a way that's maybe a little easier for us to understand. He says, Assyria will rise like a flood, like the Euphrates overflowing its banks and rushing in to sweep Syria and Israel away. And poor little Judah will have to stand on tiptoe just to keep her head above water. And the suffering could have all been avoided if Judah's leaders had trusted in the Lord. Kids, I thought about that question this week in my own life, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. (laughs) I actually decided I didn't want to think about that question very much in my own life. 
How much sadness from hurt in relationships? How much anxiety about unknown circumstances? How much hardship from the consequences of insisting on my own way? How much could have been avoided if I had trusted in the Lord? Ahaz has offered not only a wonderful promise of hope, but the opportunity to choose any sign he can think of to confirm the reality of that hope. But instead, he chooses to trust in himself. And the language is clear, he'll not get another opportunity. If you look in verse 11, Isaiah encourages Ahaz to ask a sign of the Lord your God. Isaiah is giving Ahaz the benefit of the doubt here that he's a follower of Yahweh who will ultimately trust in Yahweh. But Ahaz will not trust God. So in verse 13, Isaiah's language changes. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah's God is not Ahaz's God. And that's the first thing that's happened in this story that actually should alarm Ahaz. It's the first thing that should bring terror to the human soul. It's the the suggestion that God is not with you. But Ahaz is focused on other things. Now, God's going to do what he said he's going to do with or without Ahaz's participation. That Ahaz rejects the offer of a sign doesn't mean that God is going to comply. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this sign will not be for Ahaz. It will be for those who trust in God. You see, disobedience doesn't change God's plan. Only the experience of it for the one who disobeys. Ahaz's disobedience doesn't change God's plan. It only changes how Ahaz experiences God's work in the world. God is still going to deliver his faithful people, his remnant. But Ahaz and those like him who persist in unbelief will not be delivered. And how this will come about testifies to God's sovereignty over the short and the long term. God will be faithful to his promise. He is not going to allow Ahaz and Judah to fall to Israel and Syria. That would just be confirming Ahaz's fears, wouldn't it? It would justify his unbelief if Ahaz were able to say, I told you so. I told you these armies were going to destroy us. No, instead, those nations will fall to Assyria just as Ahaz hopes. But there is always a day of judgment that comes for those who refuse the mercy of God. Always. And Ahab is no exception. And when that day comes, it's Assyria, the God, the idol in which Ahaz trusted, that will be his undoing. Those who trust in God will always be saved. 
And while we should believe it simply because God said it, God, knowing our weakness, is gracious to give signs that can strengthen faith. And here, that sign is a great example of two things being true at once. A sign that is a promise of hope in the short and the long term. Picking up in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There's a lot of language in here that means two things at once or can go both ways. The virgin is the same Hebrew term as the young woman. And this idea of refusing the evil and choosing the good, this is a, a, a figure of speech in Hebrew culture that refers to someone, a, a young man turning 12 years old. What we see then is that this sign is two things at once. It is a confirmation of a promise that is very important to Isaiah's generation. They will not fall to Israel and Syria. And for them, this promised sign will come in the person of Isaiah's own son, Maher Shahal Hashbaz. Easy for you to say. <laughs> this son of Isaiah's was, for this generation, the sign of God's presence with his people. He was the one conceived by this young woman and born and named so that the people would know every time they saw Isaiah's son that God is with us. He is the sign, the confirmation that God is with his people even in this generation. He was the reminder of the promise that Israel and Syria, so threatening now, by the time this young man is 12 years old, will be utterly irrelevant. It's a remarkable sign. And that's exactly what would happen. The promise would be fulfilled just as God said. Within a couple of years, Syria is defeated by Assyria. And then 10 years later, Assyria conquers Israel's northern kingdom because God always keeps his promises. And that's why those who trust in him can feel secure, not just in the long term, but even now. Now, many in, Ju many in Judah, including Ahaz, would not trust. And in their unbelief, they would fall into captivity as God brings judgment against their rebellion. And the remnant, the faithful followers of God, scattered within Judah, will experience the same difficult circumstances as the unbelievers. They too will go into captivity. They too will have their nation taken away, not because of their faith, but because of the lack of faith and the unbelief widespread throughout their generation. You see, we're not set apart from the world by the circumstances we experience. We live through the same large-scale judgments of God, the same trials and adversities as those who curse God and persist in their unbelief. We're not set apart by what we experience in this life. We're set apart by faith 
and the hope we have for the future despite those circumstances, despite that experience. We're set apart by the fact that we can enter into the difficulty of those circumstances knowing that this is not the end. This is not all we have. Now Isaiah will eventually be gone, and so will his son, God's sign for Judah. Syria and Israel will fall. And eventually, so will Assyria. History marches on. Empires rise and fall. Times change. That's why it's important to see that God's promises aren't just for our short-term hope, but also for the long. And it's true of his signs. Verse 14, as you well know, isn't just about Isaiah's son, is it? It's about God's son. That word translated young woman in the case of Isaiah's wife can also be translated virgin as highlighted in the Gospels. Isaiah's son is Emmanuel, a sign for the times that God is with us. But he's just the opening act, the important one for that time in the history of God's people, but just the opening act. Jesus is the real Emmanuel. God, not just with us, but united to us in the flesh of humanity. The future for those who trust in God is secure in the short term because it's secure in the long. That's why we're called to a robust faith that is stronger than our circumstances. If we can trust God with our eternity, Surely we can trust God for our tomorrow, can't we? If Isaiah's son can be a sign of hope and encouragement for God's people, despite significant unrest and turmoil, surely Jesus Christ, the son of God, can be a greater hope and peace inspiring sign for us. One of the reformers said that with his people, God uses two kinds of signs, two categories Some are extraordinary. These are the miracles that God performs that can leave us no doubt that he is with us and that our trust in him is well-founded. When I was in North Carolina contemplating leaving full-time ministry and moving from there to Atlanta, I thought I knew what I should do, but it was a big risk. And I had a lot more questions than I had answers about what I was going to do. And I met with a pastor friend of mine, and he encouraged me to pray to God for a sign, a clear sign of his favor on this decision. And he said, you may not get it. God doesn't owe you a sign. But what's the harm in asking for one? And how much would you trust in him if he gave you one when you asked? And you know what? He did. In that event, not always, but in that event, he gave me a clear and miraculous sign of his favor on what our family was to do. It was incredible. I should have trusted without the sign, but it felt really good to have the sign. (laughs) The other kind of sign, this pastor says, and I think we might tend to minimize these, are the more ordinary, the ones in regular use among believers. Signs like sacraments, 
baptism, and the Lord's Supper. While the gospel has everything we need for salvation, don't you notice that God also gives us these signs of salvation? He gives us a mark of the covenant. He gives us a meal of forgiveness and acceptance to to frequently prompt us to trust in his promises. We forget that we belong to God, even though God says, you belong to me. But then we can reflect on our baptism, that God himself spoke and marked us out as belonging to him. And we forget and doubt that God could ever actually forgive us or accept us in his family. Because after all, did you see me this week? If God had any idea what I did, what I'm capable of, he would never forgive me, never welcome me here. And yet he gives us this sign where week after week he extends to us with an open hand his own body and his own blood and says, you are forgiven, you are accepted. Because we'd forget. He gives us worship. He gives us fellowship. He gives us all throughout the year answered prayers. And without getting too charismatic on you, he also just gives us a sense of his spirit with us. Those times when we feel within us that God is with me. And these are just, in God's kind providence, ordinary signs. (laughs) They're ways that God confirms to us that what he says again and again and again is true. He is with us. Now, I suspect that most of us in this room trust God for the long term. That what he's done for us in Christ and the proof of that promise through the resurrection of Christ, we take hold of by faith, trusting in him for the saving of our souls for eternity. That is the only real hope anyone can have for the long term. And if you don't have that hope, it's here for you in Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promises. But my experience is also that even when we trust God for the long term, many of us still miss out on the immediate hope that he offers. We trust him to save us from the enemies of eternity then will we not also trust him to deliver us from the enemies of tomorrow? Ahaz thought that this trust came at too high a cost. Another man wrote, God hands Ahaz a blank check, but he refused to cash it. Why? Because it comes with strings. If you trust God to be in control of your life, God will be in control of your life. Friends, we won't get anywhere in the pursuit of hope and peace by declining what God offers and trying to provide for ourselves instead. Let's turn to God in the ways that we think, in the ways that we talk about our circumstances and our future, in the ways that we act and make decisions about what comes next. Let's Turn to God. Let's demonstrate trust in him for the short term and the long term. Because among the many, many others he's provided, he has given us one life-altering sign. The risen Christ. 
And so I ask you, what more do you need to trust in him?